Welcome to the State of Minds podcast, where we pick the brains of the best minds in neuroscience today. This is a podcast of the Graduate School of Systemic Neurosciences at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, made possible thanks to the generous support of Lena Beetle and Sven Schwan. She is at the medical center of the University of Freiburg. She does fascinating work on cochlear implants, which we touch upon in the interview. But honestly, there is so much more that we discuss. And I have to say that this must be one of my favorite interviews so far. It is definitely one of the most useful for the listeners. Let me know if you agree, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Just to start off and get some background on your history in neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So I saw that you studied biology throughout your bachelor's and master's, and then you switched to neurobiology. So why did you decide to specialize in neuroscience? Mm-hmm. So uh, first of all, I was very interested in neuroscience in school. So because you have to focus in, so in Germany, um, at my school, you were interested or you were allowed to write an extra exam. Um, and focusing on one topic in your major subjects. Mm-hmm. And that was, for, for me, was biology. And one of my teachers, she was very interested in neuroscience. And she gave us an extra course on neuroscience in addition to the normal um, lecture. And I was very interested to um, write something about the apalic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that was the first time that I was very fascinated by the brain and said, okay, my God, I love that. It's so interesting to find out what kind, um, uh, what of these regions are very important, uh, which are still intact for in case of an apalic syndrome um, and which not. And so I spent, I think, three or four months reading a lot, reading papers and textbooks, and I decided, okay, that's really cool. That's what I want to do. And I decided to study biology in the beginning because when I started to study biology, there was no master of neuroscience mm-hmm. or things like that. And, but after my pre-diploma, I decided, okay, I want to focus more on neuroscience and uh, biophysics. And that's the reason why I then moved to Freiburg and uh, focuses especially on neuroscience. So we had some extra courses from Art Erzen and Professor Fischbach and so on and so on, focusing on neurogenetic, on biophysics and auditory system. And yeah, I said, okay, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Today we have an, in Freiburg also a Master of Neuroscience. That's excellent, right? So, but yeah, that was the beginning of um, yeah, being interested in neuroscience. But do you think that there is an advantage to starting a little bit later and having a broader outlook and mm-hmm. a broader foundation as a biologist compared to now people having bachelors in neuroscience? Mm-hmm. So I would say it was excellent for me to get an idea of the different fields of, mm-hmm. of biology um, because, yes, I was interested in neuroscience and 
by comparing the different um, lectures, so focusing on genetics, on physiology of plants and so on mm -hmm. and so on, I, I saw, okay, it's all very interesting, but it's not so interesting for me as, for example, neuroscience, focusing on neuroscience. Um, and it was very good for, um, yeah, if you are becoming a researcher, it's good to see how you can um, look on different topics, what different methods you can use on, um, to um, answer your research questions. So I would say also to participate in the different um, internships of the different topics here, for example, plant physiology and so, uh, was very, very good for your um, final decision to focus now completely on neuroscience. I would do always the same. So mm -hmm. to get an idea and to compare and also to have the chance maybe to switch later, right? To say, okay, I focus now on neuroscience, but that does not mean that I'm not interested in genetics, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But still all these stages happened in Germany and was this intentional? Would you envision yourself in an alternative universe going abroad for masters if you had an opportunity? Because now students are very pressured, they say like more exposure, more mm -hmm. intercultural experience, go out mm -hmm. starting from bachelors. Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. So I became um, a fellow of an um, of the Studienstiftung des Deutschen Volkes, so it's um, yeah, um, funding for very excellent students in Germany and they um, support you with extra money to go abroad to study there or to um, um, go abroad for language schools. I um, spent some time in England uh, for language school, uh, but I have to say because of the uh, move from um, from Düsseldorf to Freiburg after four semesters, um, I was very interested first of all to um, yeah to to be in Freiburg to meet people to become familiar with all the different uh, topics with the different chairs there, and I was very interested to do um, or to be an um, a student in an internship in the um, in the semester break for example and uh, to learn a lot about neuroscience so i spend my time more on um being a student in internships or um, yeah so um as instead of going abroad um yeah it's it's maybe it's a good question if you should do that in, in, in during the master but i would say for me it was good to do it as a postdoc mm -hmm. yeah um to finish first um to know what is the right field for you because when you go, for example, to Spain, there will be always, um, yeah, so it's sometimes a problem to get all the courses accepted here in Germany, or sometimes there's maybe not the cor correct course you want to mm. attend, yeah, and you know, for example, you will get the chance to attend in Freiburg or in Munich or wherever. Um, so, yeah, for me, I think it was the right way to, to say, finish first your studies and then go abroad as a postdoc. Do you think it is a situation unique to Germany in a sense because it has so many universities that there is domestic market is so wide that maybe you don't need to look abroad to find something different? Mm. Yeah, so I think that is also a very important point. So you have so many excellent universities at the moment in Germany and it is completely different to live in the north of Germany and to be student of, of the Hamburg University mm -hmm. or to go to Munich, for example, right? It's also a different cultural background, if you like, or to go to Ber Berlin. 
Um, that is one option. If you're very interested to study in a foreign um, language, of course, it's maybe a good idea to go to um, Norway or to Spain. Or, um, and I would say some of my medical PhD students spent some time in Spain, for example, for as an Erasmus student, and that was a good time for them. Yeah. Even, and that was an interesting th uh, story, even one of my PhD students with bilateral cochlear mm -hmm. implants, she, she um, struggles a lot with with their mother tongue, but she decided I go abroad mm. and and study in Spain in Spanish, yeah, even if I still have problems because she gets her cochlear implants relatively late. And I think that's great. So um, if you get a fellowship and you can do that and manage it, yeah, why not? But yeah, different opportunities. And I think in my case, so as you say, uh, a lot of people have the pressure to say, okay, let's go to uh, Spain or to UK or to the US. Um, but a lot of them focus on these um, excellent universities. Oh, maybe I can get a, a position at, um, or a, yeah, a fellowship for uh, Oxford University or to go to Stanford or something like that. Why always focusing on these universities? I spend now, for example, as a postdoc an, ex an, an excellent time in, in Hong Kong, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when I checked out where all this DAD Prime fellows spent their time, one and a half year abroad, they were mainly, mainly focused on UK and the US. I was the only one who, um, who was interested to go to Asia, mm -hmm. right? And if you have the right people there, as for example, Jan Schnupp, a former professor at um, Oxford University now with his group in Hong Kong, doesn't mean that you can't go into a country which is completely different mm -hmm. from your own cultural background, right? Yeah, so you partly preempted my question. So you, you would say that it is very important to focus on the topic and finding the right supervisor, even when you are uh, seeking a postdoc position, rather than treating it as the sort of signaling device, as in if I spend my postdoc in Oxford, even if it was a miserable time and I had a project that I didn't really like, then I think it will help me advance my career. Because of maybe CV polishing. Yes. Right? A lot of people think about this going abroad because of CV polishing. I would say, as of for me, it is not the right way. I would always say it's more important to find the right people where you can learn a lot uh, I spent one and a half year in Jan's lab and I learned two new, completely new techniques, electrophysiology and behavioral approaches, and it was an excellent time. And I think uh, for one and a half year I learned a lot and we um, got results which are extremely good for this short time mm -hmm. and developed completely new setups. So I would say instead of thinking, um, okay, I have to go to Oxford, to Stanford because of this name in my CV, focus on what is good, what is interesting, because for all this work it is very important that you are motivated, that you love your work and that you love your collaboration partner. Yeah? Um, in my case it was excellent because we combined work and a lot of um, interesting thing, things at the weekend, hiking and so on and so on, which makes it very pleasant. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And um, it was a great time, but to go and say, okay, he's an excellent guy, he has very high publications in nature and so on and so on. But then at the end, you are one or two years in this lab. You come back and would say, oh my God, I never met him because he's always busy. I learned nothing. But okay, I still, I even have um, 
um, now this short name Oxford University in your CV, I don't know. I don't know if that is the right way. For me, it's not the right way to, to do and to go on as a young researcher. But that depends, I think. But how important do you think is mentorship? Because I, mm-hmm. I hear you say that you, you spend a lot of time with uh, mm-hmm. Professor Snoop and that it meant a lot to mm-hmm. your development as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Because th- there is also an argument now made for PhDs, but especially for postdocs, that at that stage, mm-hmm. one has to be able to store one's own course independently. So, um, so I have to say, so I had a, a very good uh, mentor during my PhD. So Professor Illing at Freiburg, he, he trained me on cochlear implantation and I um, enjoyed it a lot to be then independent, to do my own surgeries. And for me, it was also important. Um, so I had different mente- mentors during my time, time in Freiburg. There's, some, there's a special program where they find um, a tandem of mentor and mentees. Um, especially for young researchers, to give them a little bit of background information, what's good, think about your publications, about attending special courses to train on um, to giving lectures yeah, or something like that. So that was good. And Freiburg is very interested in helping young researchers um, starting their career. But as you say, so that, that is one point. And then it's very good to change the mentor. Um, after a while, I think because everybody is different from each other. And in my case, Professor Illing and Professor Schnupp are completely different researchers with different um, personalities and ways to come to the results, right? And that is great for a young researcher mm-hmm. to have the chance to see the different ways to become a researcher, a successful researcher, and to decide what's the right way for me. Is it maybe a combination? Um, and it's also a good uh, way of becoming independent because um, I would say um, so you see the two different ways of uh, becoming a successful researcher and then you have to go two steps away from this and have to think about okay so what's now my plan what can I use what is a good advice what helps me now to build my own research Mm -hmm. personality I think that's I would always say it's good to have a mentor who helps you to to find the right way, especially in the beginning, and then yeah, to to build up your own career. And um, that does not mean that you are not interested in going on with a collaboration. Mm-hmm. That helps you a lot. Yeah, of course. So you said several times to be a successful scientist. How would you define success as a scientist? Because especially now with okay. all the impact factors mm-hmm. and, and the publications mm-hmm. in, in flashy journals, it's, mm-hmm. I think, very hard, especially for young people, to know what the right steps are and, and how to evaluate themselves and be honest with themselves. Mm. Yeah. So first of all, I have to say, um, I hate this, this uh, discussion about impact factors because I have to say as a young... yeah. As there's a lot of pressure, of, especially for young researchers. You, they, all, all the older professors say you have to publish in Journal of Neuroscience, in Nature Neuroscience, and so on and so on. But that I think that doesn't say anything about the quality of your research. That's, that's what I think at the moment. Um, if you are f- completely focused, as we, for example, in auditory neuroscience, um, sometimes the correct, the right journal for your publication is 
hearing research is just are, is something like that mm. with relatively low impact compared to a nature neuroscience or things like that because it is focused and it's interesting for um, for a group of experts and that's the reason why you are not interested in not interesting enough for a big journal like science and nature yeah mm. but that does not mean that your results are not good yeah and um, that is why I hate this um, discussion about impact factors and that they say, okay, if you're applying for a position as a junior professor, you have to have so many papers with so many impact. No, that I think that is too, uh, that's not the right way mm -hmm. for the future. And um, I think there are a lot of older researchers who would agree. Um, of course, if you are successful and you have the luck that your topic research topic is so sexy, that everybody is interested to publish your results and maybe also science and nature. Congratulations, that's extremely good. But for example, it's the same in my case, I'm limited. I'm focused on cochlear implant um, in animals and maybe at the moment ITD. And so the, that is only something which is very, very interesting for, our, for experts, right? If we are happy and lucky and we can um, Think about translational research so that our results are very important and that is something that I hope that we can show important for patients with um, problems um, of um, sound localization then it's maybe also interesting for the clinic and yeah let's see I cross the fingers that um, we can um, that it becomes interesting for a huge um, audience and readership but um, that does not mean that um, that um, that your research is not not successful, that it's not good enough. Um, and success, how would I define success? Um, I got feedback, so um, I prepared my PhD thesis and I won two prizes, one from the Roche company, one from the antique German um, community. And yeah, for our research field, they said it's, it's an excellent um, research and, I, and it was a pleasure. To, to win this prize um, but um, success success means you like I think you it means you like your work you you love you work hard for it it's not a, um, not a problem to spend maybe also seven days a week in the lab um, with your animals um, and success means um, other people are interested in your work um, that can be a limited number of people um, and that can be also a huge um, group of people but at the moment I would say when I'm invited for talks of excellent researchers as for example Benedict Grote, Malis Knipper and so on and so on that shows that the people um, know that you are in this field successful and that maybe your research is also interesting for, for them and I think it's the right way so to say yeah it's it, for me it's the right way to go on and to um, to to build up maybe my own research group and to collaborate with these excellent researchers. Yeah. So to get a bit closer to your research topic and still stay on the theme of interaction with the community, as you mentioned, uh, you are in the auditory neuroscience subfield and you are dealing with cochlear implants. And you're using the RAT model to study the plasticity of the system. As you mentioned during your talk, 
even within the field, rat is a controversial choice of a model, but then outside of the field to a wider community, the the larger issue is is rodent any rodent should be gerbil or mm-hmm. a rat a good model at all for a, for a human and aren't we just wasting resources for mm. uh, this basic research that doesn't lead anywhere while we could have invested it into clinical trials or mm. um, in trying to cure the the patients that we already have so so w- what is the argument that that you give to people who are opposed to translational neuroscience. Mm. So very good point. So um, when I in, during my talk, I, for example, I said, so what is the state of the art of binaural hearing in CI patients? And you see there are a lot of problems, especially for sound localization using time. And um, at the moment, we would say the right way now is to have good animal models to investigate how stimulation parameters influence this binaural hearing of CI patients and to investigate which is a good stimulation parameter or what is the right uh, synchronization of the speech processor, things like that. We have to combine different research approaches. As I said, for example, during my talk, I combine immunohistochemistry, electrophys and behavior. Behavior is maybe something that we can try to do in patients. Um, at, at least for a, a, sh- a short time window. If you want to train um, patients over a long time, it could become a problem to get the permission for things like that. So it's may- and it's maybe also not easy to find so many patients who are interested to participate in such a study for a long time. Um, but electrophys, in vivo electrophys is something that you can't do in patients. So you need these animal models to understand what's going on for example, at that moment where you implant the first time a cochlear implant and activate such a completely inexperienced auditory system, what's, what's going on? What ha- what's happening on the molecular level? We can't investigate the molecular level in the human brain. Yeah? So maybe we can use some fMRE and something like that to check um, the activity, um, the tonotopy and something uh, like that, but to see if there are new synapses um, as a result of first-time cochlear implant activation, if there's a change in the excitatory inhibitory balance, that is something that we can investigate only in a suitable animal model by using immunohistochemistry because it's a final experiment, right? You cut the brain, you can't do that in a human. Um, electrophys, it's most of the time in under at the moment in my lab under... Um, in a final experiment, so that means you anesthetize, you record, and that's it. At the end, do you perfuse the animal, for example, for immunohistochemistry, and you win so many information. So you can use this brain, one animal brain, for recording electrophysiological, uh, to get to win electrophysiological data, to do at the end immunohistochemistry. So I would say it's the right way because at the moment we don't know enough about our auditory system or uh, in general mm-hmm. our brain. So we are in the beginning, at the beginning. We, we are far away from saying, okay, oh, now we can uh, build as, um, an artificial brain. No, we don't know enough. We have to go on Let's work for ages to understand the brain completely. Yeah. You've been in this field for a while. Where would you say the majority of progress comes from? So would you say that 
it is the improvement in electronics now that is driving the translational neuroscience in the auditory subfield more than the fundamental science? Um, I think electronics is maybe some component, but don't forget for, for example, for cochlear implant patients, at the moment the electronics, so the hardware is a limiting uh, mm -hmm. component. So, um, because, so there are better electrodes, but the um, big companies like Cochlear, Medel, Bi Advanced Bionics, doesn't get the license um, to use new electrodes, right? Um, so it is a long process until um, you um, replace um, established um, cochlear implant mm -hmm. by a new version, for example, by using completely different electrode contacts. Um, I think at the moment, especially for the cochlear implant research, we see that at the moment the, the speech processes are the limiting component. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the progress at the moment is um, as a result of combining different research approaches so that we have more and more collaborations, um, that we have excellent SFBs um, um, funded by the DFG, um, which allows to bring excellent researchers together, having research questions which you can answer by using the different approaches, um, immunohistochemistry, as I said, electrophysical mm. behavior and so on, uh, optogenetic and things like that. And that's the way um, to understand the brain, by focusing not only on one um, view, on one approach, um, instead, I would say this, the future is combining and working together, building up big collaboration networks and um, not answering or asking uh, the same question several times and come using different approaches to come to results. But have you considered partnering up with an industry company and maybe becoming uh, mm -hmm. like a staff scientist and then trying to perfect very particular design of the implant and, and work in close collaboration with the engineers. Mm. So, yes, it's a very good point. Um, so I think it could be very interesting um, to work as a company. For me, it's also very important to work with students. So I'm mm. very interested in giving lectures, um, um, working together with bachelor, master, PhD students because I have the feeling that um, I can supervise them, can train them on techniques um, which are important for them and their career. And it's always a pleasure to work with young students which have completely different uh, views on research. Um, I work together with companies. For example, I had several projects in collaboration with Cochlear, the, one of the biggest company of Cochlear implants. And, um, but we worked in projects um, focusing on basic research. Um, and it was very interesting because, yeah, there are topics which are important for the company, which are very close to the patient. Yeah, what can we find out which is directly relevant for the rehabilitation mm -hmm. of a CI patient? Of course, I understand why they are focusing on things like that because that's the idea to so that the patients benefit and that you improve, for example, the sound localization in the CI patients. Um, and I think that is a very good way to, to work together with a company, to, um, to be, um, for example, a group leader at a university and to collaborate, collaborate and give them 
some feedback about what is um, yeah, the latest result of basic research mm -hmm. and to combine it with questions which are relevant for the companies. That is, I think, a good way. Maybe in future, let's see. Um, at the moment, I would say I love my work at university. Mm -hmm. um, my aim is to become a professor in, in neuroscience um, because of working together with students. And um, yeah, so, but yeah, you don't, you never know what's happening in the next mm -hmm. 10 years. So maybe it's an option. Um, and then you have to find the right company, right? Of course, so, um, where you have the chance to go on with research because not every company automatically means that you are still in research. That could be something also like business or mm -hmm. things like that. It's more for academia. So, as you mentioned before, your dissertation has been recognized by several prizes and also just looking at your CV, you have many awards and prizes of different kinds. Do you have any advice on how to apply for fellowships or awards? Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, I got, that was excellent, I got a lot of funding for um, travel, uh, DAD travel grants. Um, there it's very important to take the time to write a good proposal. So, um, I would say important is um, to, to write not too much, right? Because we all know when we work as reviewers, Uh, you don't have time, right? And so please focus on the most important points. And um, But that doesn't mean that you write nothing. Of course, you have to answer all the questions. There is a, and um, there's normally a um, form that you have to fill in. So take the time. Don't do it in the last minute so that you say, oh my God, I have to submit it in two hours. So let's go and start now. That's too late. Prepare a little bit. And if you... Um, if you have some documents, you can also reuse them, right? So mm -hmm. for different um, for different grants, for applying for different grants, and I'm um, always very interested in reading literature. So when you write a proposal or things like that, it's very very important to um, to know what's going on in your research field. So. Um, It's important to stay in contact with other experts in this field to cite their research, of course, because otherwise, yeah, if you want to publish a paper and you forgot one important person, oh my God. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I would say to be successful means prepare well. Um, and, um, yeah, of course, we, we all have problems with time, but... Um, at least spend a little bit of time to make sure that there are not too many mistakes and things mm -hmm. like that, so that you use the right form and everything. So then it hopefully should be successful. And don't forget all the things that you did, right? If mm -hmm. you have extra um, um, things like um, um, voluntary activities, um, working as a reviewer, um, or I'm a commissioner for the, for the Studienstiftung des Deutschen mm -hmm. Volkes, So I spend weekends um, to find out who's the next generation um, mm. of uh, fellows for the Studienstiftung des Deutschen Volkes and I get, I get nothing for it. It's a voluntary mm. activity, right? And these are things, um, so it's nice to see um, um, what people are applied for such a fellowship and to ask what's their aim, their mm. future research goal and um, it's always a a pleasure to work with his people so yeah 
think about how you can give something back to students and then write it down in your CV. Of course, that will be help to be successful. So now to the questions that I ask all of our guests. The first is, is there any skill that you wish you have picked up earlier on in your career? So I have to say, <laughs> so research skills, um, yes, for example, now during my time in Hong Kong at Jan Schnupp's lab, I learned a lot. And of course, um, to be expert in electrophysics and behavioral neuroscience during your PhD would be excellent too, but you can't learn everything at the same time. Yeah. So you you should never forget that there's so many different things that you can learn during your whole research career. Um, so yeah, so learn and learn so much you can um, um, as long as you are a PhD and postdoc. And um, that's one point. The other point, um, something that I'm interested. Yeah, so um, I attended a lot of seminars at the University of Freiburg. Uh, especially for PhD students, it was excellent, it was for free. You applied for it um, because there was always a limited number of um, participants and that was for example coaching. Um, how do you have to um, supervise students, how to write a paper, how to write a PhD thesis, um, coaching, how to work with other people mm. right? and to talk with your um, boss and things like that. And that helped me a lot. But I started very early, so during my PhD. And um, I would say that was a good way to attend. To spend some time, of course, to attend uh, such a courses will maybe take several days mm. in a year. But, but it needs some days. But yeah, at the end, you know uh, what are the do, do's and don'ts of writing mm. a, a scientific paper. And um, that helps you to be successful yeah, when you submit. I would say that's a good way and I would say everybody, every student should check out at his or her university if there are some courses available that you can attend. That's definitely great advice. Um, is there any piece of data that's been recently published that you're most excited about? So, <laughs> okay. Um, at the moment I'm very excited about what um, I find out together with Jan, but we are still in preparation of this, um, uh, of this manuscript because we are the first showing that rats are a good animal model to study binaural mm -hmm. hearing. Um, but yeah, so a piece of data from, from other researchers, you mean from other researchers, for yeah. example? Um, maybe one, so it's, I think, one or two years ago, I heard I attended a very interesting talk um, on the fence mm -hmm. meeting um, during the fence meeting, talking about about the um, um, the glial um, system. So they said how important it is that we sleep, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and how important it is that you are not sitting during sleep, um, because then it's impos impossible for your brain to remove um, rubbish, yeah? mm. so um, molecules that you don't need anymore, so, um, which are, it's called the glymphatic system, mm. because of the glial cells, which are important for this process. And in this talk, I learned for the first time, um, 
even if you have important um, important experiments to do, especially for for us electrophysiologists, you work sometimes hours, twenty hours and longer. You come home and you feel how tired you are. Take your time and sleep because it's so important for your brain to recover. It will not recover when you say, okay, I go to bed for one hour and go on. That's not enough. And there, during, in this talk, they said maybe that's a reason why sometimes people die when they um, are awake for a long time mm -hmm. with only very short breaks and, or always um, hanging somewhere, sitting during sleep. That's not healthy for you. And I think that was very interesting to see how important glial cells are for this process because they are located around the blood vessels in the brain and there's a pressure um, and during the day all this rubbish is uh, surrounded around the blood vessels and then it's waiting to transport it um, 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 via the blood mm -hmm. vessels then during sleep. So I think that was very, very interesting talk and that is something I'm always thinking about when I'm sitting, for example, <laughs> on a plane, right? Long trip, long distance trip with 16 hours on a plane, for example, you think, oh my God, that's really unhealthy for my brain. <laughs> so, yeah, for example, I love that. Yeah. yeah, that's excellent and with such a practical application. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the last question is, what do you think is the most successful theory in neuroscience today? Um, most successful theory um, so I would say it's maybe not a theory but I would say we, we shouldn't forget that we are at the beginning so the mm -hmm. theory here is so we everybody says oh we, need, we know so many things about our brain no sorry <laughs> that's not true that's not true that would mean we are we all we neuroscientists um, are not needed in future. That's not true. We have to go on with research by focusing on uh, the brain to understand step by step of what are circuits working together, what which molecules are very important, um, the balance of excitation and inhibition. What how important is um, is input from from your environment. So I would say the theory is, um, or the idea at the moment is, go on with basic research and um, try to understand the brain. Then we can think maybe in, in future to combine um, artificial brains mm -hmm. with, with human brains, can think about more about brain machine interfaces. I think it is the right way to combine um, and help especially disabled people um, to combine brain and, um, and machines um, to help them to become part of a normal environment, normal mm -hmm. as, as possible for them under the situation. But um, yeah, the theory is um, that we know, so at the moment, maybe my take home message here is we know not enough about the brain to say that we can replace our brain completely mm -hmm. by an artificial brain. And there are first steps to combine them with very successful neuroprotheses like the cochlear mm -hmm. implant. But the cochlear implant is very successful because the inner ear is very simple, mm -hmm. organized. When we think about deep brain stimulation or things like that, yeah, we use it, but what's going on in this brain? We can't stop the process of Parkinson's disease. Yeah, So mm -hmm. there is one point where a deep, a deep brain stimulation will not help the patient anymore. 
because we don't stop the degeneration of the neurons. Mm -hmm. So that shows, yeah, there are a lot of um, um, implants that help humans, but um, how it works and how we can improve, and if it's very close to the normal situation, no, I wouldn't agree. Even for a cochlear implant patient, they are far away from normal hearing. Mm. Um, and we have to go on with research to understand um, very important details um, that we need to um, build up an artificial circuit or things like that. That's a great hopeful note to finish on, especially for students, because we won't run out of work anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast from. Till next time.